Tous les matins, on essaye de traverser le miroir et de regarder le monde différemment. It is true, I am a woman. Une fois que ce saut est fait, tout devient possible. Hello, I'm Charlotte Kassaragi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous Littéraires Rue Cambon, a place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? And today, Erika will be hosting Maddie Mortimer. I'm Erika Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Maddie Mortimer and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires, Rue Cambon. Maddie Mortimer believes in the transformative power of literature. I like to think of written words as the corners and nooks where the light won't go, she has said. It's why blank pages are so astonishing. Maddie's own debut novel, Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies, is certainly astonishing. Winner of the prestigious Desmond Elliott Prize and long-listed for the Booker Prize, it is a coming-of-age novel set at the end of a life. Its protagonist, Leah, has terminal cancer, and the book charts her journey by engaging with her whole history— with her past life and loves, and in her relationship with her 12-year-old daughter, Iris. Told with remarkable style, in a fragmented stream of consciousness that includes different typefaces, typesettings, lists, and visual arrangements, the novel was called A Poignant and Inventive Debut by Publishers Weekly. Mortimer's writing is restlessly inventive, said The Guardian. One of my favourite commentaries on the novel came from the British Medical Journal's blog. I'll quote it here. Instead of cancer as content, Mortimer has written a book true to the disease's insidiousness, resourcefulness and survival instincts. Cancer clings to every fibre of maps of our spectacular bodies. It's in the corners of paragraphs, the ligature of sentences, in the fatty bellies of rounded letters. Welcome, Maddie Mortimer. Thank you so much for having me. There's so much to talk about when we consider your vocation as a writer, but I'd love to start by talking about your passions. I know that poetry mm. speaks strongly to you. And there's a wonderful quote from the poet Anne Carson mm. that you've mentioned. I'll read it out to you. The poet is someone who feasts at the same table as other people. But at a certain point, he feels a lack. He is provoked by a perception of absence within what others regard as a full and satisfactory present. How did those words speak to your job as a writer? Well, I think... From a very young age, I felt that there was something lacking around me, in my life, within me. And 
when I read that Anne Carson quote, and I love Anne Carson, I've read everything she's written. I think she's a genius. I was like, oh, that's it. That's it. Maybe that means I'm a poet. <laughs> it spoke to me because it seemed to me to be the reason why I have always written to sort of write away from that absence, to find some way of filling it, but also understanding those lacks and those things that we don't have within us. Sort of the moment when that really began for you. How did you begin as a writer? I think both of your parents were writers. So my mum was a writer. She considered herself sort of a documentary filmmaker for most of her life, but when she had me, she started writing a novel and then wrote two novels in her life and was working on her third um, just before she died. My dad worked in television, but my grandfather, my mother's dad, was also a novelist. He wrote about kind of like 12 novels throughout his life. So I think that writing was something that was taken quite seriously in our household. I listened to them talking about it around the dinner table growing up, and it felt like a kind of a valid option for somebody, which I think is a great luxury and I know isn't necessarily common and I wonder whether I would have come to it without being given that permission to take it seriously because that's where all of my ferocious writing started was kind of between the ages of like six and 12. I just, it was my favourite thing to do. It was all I ever did and I took it incredibly seriously and I always had like a novel on the go <laughs> but I didn't know what that really meant. Do, are there early texts from... Six-year-old you, yes. your first novel that you wrote when you were six or seven? Yes. Well, there was one when I was, I started, I think, when I was about eight, called Flame, which was a... Good title. <laughs> um, it was about lies. It was about a compulsive liar. And it was sort of a fantasy novel. And it was the first one that I, I actually finished. I, mean, I was thinking about it the other day. I found it in this kind of old box that I keep of all my old writing. I really wanted it to look like a proper book. So I, I couldn't do it on A4. I had to cut it to a proper book size and write and do little illustrations. And it was about a compulsive liar who kind of, whose sister gets kidnapped one day and she has to go and kind of save her sister from this island, which is sort of formed of all of her lies. You know, she has to face all of these lies that she's told that have all kind of been anthropomorphized into various things. The message was there, which was that kind of, you know, you have to look what you need and um, what you love is really in front of your eyes, you know. I know this novel, Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies, has been long-listed for the booker and everything, but I mean, Flame sounds like, <laughs> you know, a prospective bestseller, I yeah, have to say. I, I think it does too. I think I should consider the YA genre and, and, and type that up. But I was kind of impressed as crass, but I was pleased that I was coming up with these kind of like large conceptual things from a young age. I think the idea of the concept, the idea, this kind of the epic structure was something that I was obviously drawn drawn to from a very, very young age, probably from reading kind of lots of fantasy was when I was a kid, like Harry Potter and Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis. They were very much alive for me as a kid and probably sort of trained me in the thinking of the quest. I was going to ask you, aside from C.S. Lewis and mm. Tolkien and Harry Potter, what else were you reading as a young person? Who are some of the formative mm. influences on you? We've talked about Anne Carson, of course. Yes. It's very broad, really. I mean, 
as a kid, I read kind of ferociously when I was a young child as well. And so I read things like The Book Thief, Marcus Zusak and um, Gabrielle Zevin's Elsewhere. I remember being this huge moment for me at kind of about 12, 13. And again, books about death, books about dealing with kind of the concept of an afterlife or whatever. So those were two massive ones for me. But then into school, I guess it was all about the modernists, really. It was Virginia Woolf. It was She Had My Heart, My Everything, and Elliot and Joyce and even Forster. That was the moment when I realised that I wanted to write was reading Mrs Dalloway in my school uh, library at kind of age 17 or so. And there's a great boldness in those modernist voices. Was that what you had kind of in the back of your mind when you approached the structure and themes Mm. of this novel, which is very adventurous in its form and very unconstrained. Absolutely. I think of like the wasteland when I think of the way that you can use voice in this kind of boundless way and you can really play. And I think that's what the modernists were doing then. They were really playing with syntax and structure and with what language can create in the mind of the reader and the worlds that it can hold within the text itself. I think my influence is I'm a very scrappy, restless reader and writer. And so I think I I pick, I'm kind of a magpie, I'm plucking from all sorts and kind of trying to construct something out of those fragments. But I think human beings, to my mind anyway, are scrappy and restless (laughs) in themselves. And it's one of the things I love about this book is it has somber themes, difficult Mm. themes, but it also has the lightness of play and reflects the way that all of our attention is always scattered here Mm. and there as we're trying to take in the whole of our lives. Exactly. That idea of play, I think, is core to to how I approach writing. This idea that that we can kind of create new realities by playing with with language. And also, I think this idea that play and death are the sort of two magnets that propel the whole novel structure and it just bounces between those two things and there is very much this idea in the book that like the playground which is sort of you know the page is the only place that is the only sort of area arena where death can't win where you can really test the way that people can live on tell me a little bit about the journey of this novel our podcast is concerned with writers who are at the beginning of their careers so i'd love to hear about your moment of realizing you had something finished that you could present to the world and then how you went about finding an agent, finding a publisher, what it was like to discover you were going to be a published author. I didn't have a finished manuscript by the time I got an agent. I was working in marketing after university and knew that I wanted to be a writer and that I was writing and that I had these fragments and these scraps that I'd been piecing together for a while. So I went and did a course at Faber and Faber, Faber Academy, but kind of just because I felt that I needed to be given permission to take myself seriously as a writer because I think it's very hard, that transition between being like, I like to write and then being like, no, I'm going to try and make some kind of concrete thing out of this is a very difficult transition I think for any writer to make and so I did this course it was Tuesday evenings for two hours 
every week. It was amazing to to be around people. I don't have any friends who are writers. It was amazing to be around people that took their work seriously, that cared so much about this thing that was inside of them. And it was incredibly humbling and exciting, just a really beautiful thing to be part of every week. And so it was just kind of working on the book and letting it sort of guide me. And it all happened in a very organic, natural kind of it all sort of poured out. And there was obviously lots of kind of ferocious rewriting. But after I had, uh, the course finished after six months and I had about um, 100 pages of the book and sent it out to a group of agents, just hoping that something would come of it. And quite a few of them, I think bar one, were like, we'll represent you. (laughs) (laughs) And it was such a joy. I was, it was like, this whole, the whole process has been so full of these kind of completely surprising just thrills and being like, can't get better than this. It can't get better than this, even if it doesn't get published. No, it can't get better than this feeling of five, six, you know, brilliant agents wanting to, you know, represent you. I think that sense as a writer of just feeling people respond Mm -hmm. to your work, that's what we're after. Completely. And I think people underestimate how important those like boosts of confidence are in terms of propelling you through a project, a piece of writing, just having those moments of people validating what you do, kind of everything in those early stages. I got this brilliant agent, Zoe Waldy, and she just encouraged me so much and guided me through the the end of the writing process, really. And it was over, I finished it over COVID, over the first lockdown of summer 2020, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, And that was an incredibly intense experience and exactly the kind of isolation that the end of the book needed. So it was a very horrible, fraught time for everyone. But in a strange way, uh, you know, that time alone with no distraction was also a kind of a a real gift as a writer. Um, So finished it over lockdown and then did all of the editor stuff. She sent it on submission. And I remember just being like, oh, my God, this is the worst and, and, you know, I was in these pyjamas that I'd been in for like two months and had bits of breakfast on me and <laughs> and hadn't hadn't really left my little bedroom, really, in weeks and weeks and prepared for a kind of two week uh, at least because I googled how long do you wait until somebody either decides or doesn't decide to publish you. And Google told me it was about two weeks was the average. So I kind of prepared for a two weeks of hell and waiting. And then about 24 hours later, I got a call from Zoe saying that we had our first offer. I was by the river because I was living there at the time with my family and, and I was on this walk with them and they're trying to get my mind off things and just sort of like in a very kind of melodramatic way, just sort of collapsed and was like, oh my God, this is this, I'll remember this forever. So that was the beginning really. And then it, um, and we had luckily a few editors that wanted it and the book went to auction and I was doing all the kind of auction meeting listening to all these these incredible editors pitching to you why you should go with them all over zoom of course you know just like pants on shirt on (laughs) like nothing else and that was so surreal and I think that's definitely contributed to to why it being out in the world now feels so surreal because the process was Um, because it all happened over COVID, incredibly isolating. And it felt like mine and mine alone, really. And I I felt that I had no one really to share it with because it was just me in my bedroom, feeling like life was sort of changing. And this thing that I loved and had worked on um, so, you know, rigorously was was making its way out into the world and yet nobody was yet, you know? Um, Exactly, exactly. 
Will you read us the first page? I, itch of ink, think of thing plucked open at her start. No bigger than a capillary, no wiser than a cantaloupe, and quite optimistic about what my life would come to look like. I have since ached along her edges, delighting in my bare feet floorboard creeps across from where she once would feed, down to where her body brews I have sampled, splintered, leaked and chewed through tissue, nook, bone, crease and node, so much, so well, so tough now, that the place feels like my own. It is, perhaps, inevitable that after all this time I have come to feel a little dissatisfied with the fact of my existence. This is not easy to admit. I suppose one can only be a disaster tourist for so long before the cruel old ennui starts to set in. But the Greeks said that in the beginning there was boredom. The gods moulded mankind from its black, lifeless crust, and this is, of course, encouraging. Today I might trace the rungs of her larynx, or tap at her trachea like the bones of a xylophone, or cook up or undo some great horrors of my own. Because here is the thing about bodies. They are impossibly easy to prowl without anyone suspecting a thing. Until, of course, they do, and then, of course, they aren't. Thank you so much. In our next section of conversation, I'd like to ask you about your writing process. <laughs> do you have rituals or special things you like to do when you write? Do you write in a specific place? How do you make your pattern of creativity? At the moment, I'm quite uprooted because I've been between places. But for most of my writing, I it will take place at my desk and it's an incredibly meditative experience. It's very immersive. I listen to lots of music, lots of film scores. I can't do lyrics because it gets in the way of the language. <laughs> so I sort of sync. I write playlists for different characters and I really wrap myself up in, in the world of each of my characters. I find my writing process quite emotional and that's why film scores tend to help because they you sink into this place where you're, you're writing from a very kind of deep emotional truth. You can't do it all the time or else the writing would be too <laughs> effusive and hysterical. But music is a huge thing. I'm fascinated by the playlists that mm. you mention. Is it in any way a reciprocal process so that you find music that then makes you think of an aspect of a character and then the character leads you to the next piece of music on the playlist? Absolutely. It's in constant communication and informing each other. And I love that because, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a dance. You're, you're constructing these people through the influences and the sounds around you and, and, and you're also being kind of led by them too. And it's a lot about the time, like Leah in this book is 43 when she dies. And so, you know, she was growing up in a different time. And so getting into that, what she'd be listening to at 18, it's research, isn't it? And also it's taking in how many things besides writing influence us. Are there other things besides music that help you write? Yes, I feel 
influenced by film and art just as much as I am music. There's lots of film references in this book. I found bizarre films that you never imagine would be helpful structurally. Interstellar, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, was really, really helpful in terms of structurally by the end of the book, looking back through time, playing with time, the way that we perceive mem- memory and and our lives and and how we as kind of uh, as selves go back and try and alter moments of time. But I think, again, like I said, it's that kind of magpie instinct of picking up things and wanting to to kind of put them together. And it's, it's, it's sort of surrealism too, isn't it? It's this idea that, like, I love that, that this book has has people like Charlotte York. There's lots of pop culture references, like Charlotte York from Sex and the City and like Simone Weil, and they exist in the same book. And that really excites me because there's one world where Charlotte York exists and another one Simone Weil exists. And, and the world looks like a very different place when you put them in the same room, you know? And they're in the same room of our lives. Exactly. So the novel reflects that as well. You said that by the time you finished the course, you mm. had about 100 pages. Mm. Are you someone who revises as you go? Do you just keep pushing on and then you have a certain amount and you start to edit? How does that process work? I really edit as I go along. Um, I wish I didn't. I think that for book two, I'm trying to sail through because I do think that's helpful. Uh, I think it's probably I'm I'm giving in to my worst instincts, needing to go back and fiddle and fiddle and fiddle. But I think it was what I needed to do for this book, partly because I knew that I was going to be sending it out to agents. And I was, you know, it was it was those 100 pages were going to be my, you know, my ticket. Uh, Having said that, I think there are some things that you can never that you can never see until you've got to the very end, Um, particularly structurally and in terms of like the shape of the thing. So, yeah, this book was a kind of unique experience in that sense. I think for book two, I'm going to try and kind of, yeah, just push through to the very end and then go back. And Because it's, writing for me is so much about kind of um, accessing a very deep instinctive place within you. And it's about the musicality of sentences. And it feels important that each word, that each sentence is instinctive. I often find that when I'm writing and I'm at my best... I don't feel that it needs, at a sentence level, too much editing. And you can tell when I'm not in that deep instinctive place because the writing feels a bit fatty. That leads me to the question of what you do when you feel you're not at your best. Were there aspects of this book or of writing in general that you find particularly challenging? And how do you meet those challenges? It's all sorts. I I mean, so so much of it is challenging. So much. Um, I think... There are obviously days where you feel that you don't know necessarily where you're going. I felt overwhelmed by the task. I also think sometimes on the flip side, I can overwrite. I can be too effusive. And I think the challenge is, like I said, oh, I don't, you know, when it, when I'm writing from an instinctive place, I don't need to edit. I think that's probably one of my challenges is, is knowing when the spare stuff is the best. And so I think part of the writing process for me at the moment is acknowledging that some of the simplest of work is the best. And it's knowing when you don't need to, when you you don't have anything to prove. And it's, it's kind of letting go, relinquishing control and letting the character sort of guide you. And the story, what surprised me about writing this book was realising 
how eager I was to make it feel like this big, epic, linguistic opera. And then having to really listen to myself and be critical of that and be, you can have that, you can tone it down too. I think sometimes it's one of the dangers in a way of developing a skill Hmm. is it can then be too easy to use that skill. And you have to constantly keep asking yourself, am I using this skill in the way that's appropriate for what I'm trying to do? Absolutely. Someone said to me recently that writing's just tidying. I'd like to ask you now about the reception of this novel. What kind of responses have you had to it? Of course, as I say, you won the Desmond Elliott Prize. You've been longlisted for the Booker Prize. But I wonder what kind of, first, what kind of personal responses perhaps you got to it and what's meant the most to you? In terms of family and um, friends and, yeah, um, it's been, it's, it's, It's been such a sort of whirlwind. It's quite hard to tidy that and to kind of package it. And it's because there are elements of autobiography in it. I found family and family friends. It's been an incredibly emotional experience for them. And everyone's sort of looking for themselves in the book. There's lots of, oh, I know who this is. Oh, I know who this is. And that's always strange, navigating how you want the world to receive it, which is as a, as a piece of fiction, and then having to also, you know, negotiate the, the the kind of the more personal elements. But generally, it's been overwhelmingly positive and and very touching, um, but also very exposing. You feel incredibly vulnerable. Having friends read it is, I find, almost more scary than having strangers read it because you really feel that there's nowhere to hide. There was this feeling, and I think with all writers, that it's very hard to be your true self out in the world and so you find another place to go and be true and that's the page. And I think there's been something quite scary about this being a kind of product of my most interior self, this kind of gnarly, dark, weird person that I feel nobody knows, and then having it out there. I wonder too, because as you say, there are autobiographical elements to this book, but it's very much a beautifully crafted novel. How do you kind of navigate? Oh, it's the the great question, isn't it? It's the great impossible question. For this book, at least, it's been particularly difficult because there are elements of it that are completely fictionalized and then there are elements that are autobiographical and i think that i i think i can only say that they feed each other in a really exciting way where the personal is often a way in to something greater and larger and bigger than you but you can't be afraid of it because there's nowhere else for you to go and i think you've achieved those larger things because the book has been recognized not just by being published, but by winning prizes. What does that mean to you, that kind of recognition? It's such a source of joy, but it's also, it gives, it's given me this real feeling of co- confidence and uh, this boost to mostly 
kind of what we were talking about before about this idea of being given permission to play. I was so nervous about it making its way into the world because it is quite bonkers and it's, you know, it's a dirty word, but, you know, there's experimental elements of it. Um, and for it to be received more widely and accepted just made me very excited about the way that we are embracing different types of fiction and different types of voices. It's very hard to sort of reflect upon something that feels very close still. I feel very lucky. And it's been brilliant because all you need is you have this thing and you don't know how it's going to cope in the world and you feel like a parent and you've got this, you just want your kid to make friends in the playground. And I see it out in bookshops and I'm just like, oh, I hope they're being nice to you, you know? And so things like prize, prize recognition is... It's like becoming like a popular kid at school. And that's nice, but it's also something to be wary of because it's about the work. That's what it's about. And you can get swept up in the excitement of the goal, the end point. But the real, the real joy is the writing itself. I do believe that this book is of very little use to me now that I'm done with it. It's, it's not mine any longer. Um, and remembering that, I think, is the most important thing. Does that give you courage, I want to say, when you set out on the next part of your journey, working on your writing in the future? How does the success of this book affect what happens next? It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because it's it doesn't in some ways. The important thing is is remembering that it was of, of that joy that I felt when writing it and slightly disconnecting from it being a, a, a thing, a concrete thing out in the world. I think if anything, paying too much attention to that can be quite destructive. I've been finding it really hard not going on like Goodreads even, you know, scrolling through everything that's been said about it. And it's really hard to switch off that that instinct, that impulse to just to see what it looks like on the other side. Because as you say, in a sense, the book goes out into the world and then it's nothing to do with you. Exactly. Nothing to do with you. And so I think that I just need to take stock and be like, it's amazing what's happened so far, but on to the next, on to the next. And also to know that I found a readership, which I do believe, you know, from a very small one, but a readership that's, you know, not just like my dad and my sister. And to know that there are people you know, out in the world being like, I'll read, I can't wait to see what she does next or I'll read her next book or this, you know, I'm excited for that. What a gift. What we are going to do next right here is we always close with a sequence of questions that we ask all of our authors. So I'm going to kick off with the first one. What is the most surprising thing you have learned from being a writer? I think it would probably be the struggle of being this quiet, meditative person in a room and having to go between that solitary person and the outward-facing human being that exists in civilization and having to find some bridge that you can walk across to be both of those people, I think is the most su surprising challenge that I've found and the thing that I didn't think I'd find difficult. But connecting those two selves, the person who lives in the world and the person who writes, has been, yeah, the greatest surprise. And while we're on the subject of surprise, what would people be surprised to learn about you? Before writing, I, I was always going to be a pop star. <laughs> I like that. Good <laughs> it was pop star. It was pop star or Virginia Woolf. It was one of the two. <laughs> what is your idea of perfect happiness? 
I'm still working on that. But I think I think about like the happiest moments of my life and I think about that motion, really. I think about this idea of this moment before you arrive anywhere. I was so blissfully happy writing towards the end of this book and my happiest moments are when I'm travelling from A to B, wherever that is, and I'm listening to music and I'm in motion. And that, to me, is perfect happiness. That's fascinating. The moment something is happening, but you're waiting for something to happen too. What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity? I don't think I'd get any writing done if I didn't have this sort of hope, this sort of blind conviction that whatever I was doing did exist in the world somewhere. And I didn't have to think too much, but just listen. Just don't think, listen. In one word, how would you like to be remembered as a writer? Outrageous. And our final question, what would you like your second novel to look like? I'm working on it now and I went in thinking that it was going to be this very slight, linear thing and it's not that. I want it to be a simple human story in a way that this is but perhaps with some some more control. <laughs> some more control, some good editing on my part. Um but some but yeah, I think something something that feels that feels just as epic finding small ways of being epic, I think. Well, Thank you so much, Maddie Mortimer, for joining us on the Rendezvous Literaire podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I hope we have the chance to talk again soon. And I can't wait to read whatever your next book is. Thank you so much, Erica. It's been such a joy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Literaire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links, and references on the Chanel website. À bientôt!